and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. Um, I'm Rachel Hartman, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. How are you doing, Paul? I'm very well, Rachel. It's good to be here. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, We have a guest today, and uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of time because he's a busy scientist, so we're just going to jump right into it. Um, So our guest today is Dorian Abbott. Dorian is a professor of geophysical science at the University of Chicago. His research focuses on using mathematical models to understand things like climate change, planetary habitability, and exoplanets, and a bunch of other words that I don't really know what they mean. Um, But even though he's a renowned scientist in his field, at this point, if you've heard of him, it's probably because MIT disinvited him from a prestigious public lecture that he was supposed to give back in October. Uh, so Dorian has graciously agreed to join us on the podcast to talk about that in this invitation and to discuss more broadly the political climate in universities and solutions for creating more uh, viewpoint diversity. So welcome to the pod and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Um, so maybe uh, just for our listeners, maybe some of them are not familiar with the background of your story. So maybe... Um, you could talk us through how you became involved and became this polarizing figure that some people um, sort of kick up a fuss if you're invited to their their university. Um, how did how did uh, a uh, a geophysicist land themselves in in the middle of of such a storm of uh, controversy? Originally in twenty, so there have been sort of maybe like starting around two thousand fifteen, I started to get a little uncomfortable with how things were going uh, at University of Chicago. And in particular, with a push more towards uh, something approaching more quotas for hiring and admissions rather than uh, eliminating biases. And I think that's that's sort of like a fundamental point of disagreement between different people. So there's one push that's going for equality of oppor- of opportunity, which is, you know, I'm closer to that camp. And there's another camp that's going for equality of outcome. Like each subdivision of people, however you want to define it, has to be represented the same. And if that means that we're going to discriminate against one group to make that happen, then that's what we should do. So more of people advocating that position and it even being implemented in certain situations. So I started to get uncomfortable. And at the same time, I was uncomfortable because I felt that I was self-censoring a lot and it seemed antithetical to the mission of the university. Uh, I was self-censoring so much that I just stopped going to department events. You know, I would just, I was so worried that I was going to say something that was going to get me, me in trouble that I just didn't go put myself in that situation as much as I could. Uh, so those were the things that were bothering me. And then it just got worse really bad in 2020. And, you know, we had like university issuing statements on contentious political issues. This is what you're supposed to think and things like that. And uh, we had, you know, science journal clubs and seminar series not doing science anymore, being completely devoted to sort of one-sided political discourse. So I wasn't happy about that. And then we had an internal seminar where in the fall of 2020, where Instead of talking about science, a speaker talked about this author, Ibram Kendi, and the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and 
I, you know, if, if you've read the book, you know that it's more in the equality of outcome category. And so I asked to give a response to that seminar in the next time. And the department chair said I couldn't for sort of, you know, technical, re- you know, they came off with a technical excuse, but uh, I wasn't satisfied with that. And so I made my videos anyways and put them on YouTube and sent them to the department saying, you know, like, this is what I think about this issue. And then it led to a kind of Twitter storm and uh, a letter of denunciation by people in the department saying that my teaching and research should be restricted. And uh, the various, I pointed to some things like we can talk about later, the Shills report, which says that hiring should be done based on merit alone. So the letter of denunciation asked for that Shills report to be repealed And it asked for the department chair to figure out any other faculty in the department who had similar views to me, uh, determine all of them and subject them to special trainings until they didn't express those views anymore. Uh, So that was those were that was kind of what was in it. And then it was it was a very stressful period. You know, I didn't know if I was going to get fired or I didn't have any idea what I had stepped on or what was going on. I I was kind of bumbling through this, I guess you could say. and now I've read a lot more and I understand it. I, what, my perspective was people that we all had the same goals and somehow uh, when they were saying diversity, you know, so I thought diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of meant uh, we'll have like lots of different kinds of people with different perspectives, diversity and equity, I thought meant be fair to everyone. And inclusion, I thought, meant include everybody's perspective, even the ones that we disagree with, you know, more like toleration. But that's not what those words mean. And so I was pointing out examples where we weren't doing those things the way I understood them. And I thought everyone would just say, oh, yeah, sorry, you know, we missed that. But it turns out that it is a much more fundamental disagreement. And I just was naive and ignorant about what was being proposed. So anyways, then the president of the the university, uh, Zimmer, issued a statement saying, you know, we don't, well, okay, so first of all, there was uh, like this Quillette magazine and Free Speech Union, they organized a petition saying, don't punish this guy. And like 15,000 people signed it. And then the president of the university issued a statement saying, we don't punish our faculty for expressing their views. And that was kind of the end of it at University of Chicago, which is actually interesting because it was extremely easy. It's extremely easy for the administrators at universities to stop this kind of thing. They just say, oh, we're not doing that. And it basically goes away. Now, people are still mad at me. There's still plenty of people in the department who don't like me and don't want me to say my views, but there's no, going to be no official punishment, you know, and that, that's all it takes. So then I, I went into kind of a period of study. I was like, what the heck just happened? You know, what just hit me? So I read a lot of the books, uh, you know, critical social justice stuff, uh, and also the books criticizing it and, you know, some of the primary literature. I studied Robin DiAngelo in depth. Uh, and Sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, actually, she, do you know what a fractal is? <laughs> no. Okay, yeah. so you know what a fractal is, Rachel. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's like where you have like a shape and then it's like a bigger shape and the, the yeah. shapes are made up of the smaller shapes. Yeah, and- it's self-similar at different scales. So the... Robin D'Angelo is fractally incoherent. 
So if you read one sentence, it often doesn't logically make sense. If you read and it'll have a citation and you follow the citation, which I did when I read her book, and it doesn't actually prove the thing she's saying. You read a paragraph and the different parts don't make sense and you read the whole book and it's incoherent. So she's managed to publish a fractally incoherent book. I was very impressed by that effort. (laughs) But anyways, so I read a lot of that stuff and studied it and thought about it a lot. And I realized that this is a bigger problem than I thought. And and that it wasn't going to get solved by just kind of quiet advocacy in my department which is what I thought was going to help the problem. So I met this guy, Ivan Marinovich, a professor at Stanford, because he organizes a classical liberalism seminar at Stanford. And it's a great seminar because it's there's about 50 to 60 people usually come. It's at Stanford, it's on Zoom, and it's faculty by invitation only. And people can say whatever they think about stuff. Nobody self-censors at all. So it's you know it's a really great place to learn about ideas and not be afraid. And so he and I decided to write this article in Newsweek where we criticized diversity, equity, inclusion. And the basic criticism was that it's, it's unethical to treat human beings differently based on their immutable characteristics. And it's also unethical to treat human beings as a means to a socially engineered end. Uh, The second one was that, it's uh, it it diverts the university from its primary mission, and this is an important point. So the the primary mission of a modern university is the production of new knowledge and the dissemination of that knowledge. And so, if you have alternative goals that you're aiming at, it's harder to hit your main goal. And then the third point was that uh, the three quarters of the public is against programs where uh, hiring and promotion are done for reasons other than merit. And so uh, since the public is funding the universities and since they're hiring the people who come from universities, you're sort of undermining the public's trust in the mission of higher education if you have these alternative uh, uh, objectives. And so we didn't want to just knock it down. So we proposed something else called merit, fairness, and equality. And the goal here would be to eliminate biases as much as possible and to do merit-based evaluations. And then if you know, if you want to help people who are from a group that's underrepresented, you would try to improve education uh, and access to education for those groups uh, rather than discriminating at late stages. And so that was sort of our perspective. And that was what caused the problem at MIT because some people didn't like this article. And uh, when it was announced that I would be giving this lecture, which is kind of like a big honor in the field. uh, So it's like an evening lecture and a week visit to the department at MIT and a department seminar. um, Then they, the people who didn't like this went on Twitter and they said, Oh, this is a bad, bad guy. And, you know, we can't have this bad guy around us. I mean, that's basically was the argument. And uh, I thought that the department chair would just say, well, you know, like we're all adults here and you, you might not disagree with this stuff he's saying about a totally different topic, but he's not talking about that. And, uh, you know, we don't disinvite speakers that we've invited because that would be totally 
anathema for a university at an institution of higher learning. But instead, he called me and said, oh, we're going to cancel the lecture. And so I was like, oh, okay, you know, great. Uh, so that, that's, that's what happened there. And then, but the interesting thing was I had uh, made a lot of contacts in that year uh, on purpose because I knew this sort of thing would come again. And I contacted all of them and said, like, this is what happened. What should I do? And one was Barry Weiss. So she has this uh, uh, Substack called Honestly, or maybe that's her podcast. I don't know. Common Sense. Common Sense. I don't know. And so, you know, she said, oh, you can write an article for that. So I did that. And then I contacted Professor Robert George at the Madison program at Princeton. And he said, oh, we'll host your lecture on the same day that it would have been via Zoom. And so I did that. And so, you know, it's sort of like if you if you can make contacts and be ready, then you can respond when something like this happens. And then eventually, so MIT did invite me back to give a department colloquium in the spring on just science, uh, you know, not the full, the, you know, the big public lecture and the recognition in the field thing, but, you know, still uh, get to go talk about science and it'll be fun to interact with the professors and students there. So I'm going to do that. So that's basically, that's the summary. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I mean, it was, it kind of blew up the MIT thing, right? I mean, that it was covered by the New York Times. Um, it was, you know, it led to this guy at Berkeley, I forget his name, David. David Ross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Resigned, which was, seemed like it was kind of about you. Yeah. As, as well. He was just, it almost seemed like he wanted to make sure that he would have the ability to invite you if he wanted and people said no, so he resigned from his position at Berkeley. Well, okay, so he resigned from the directorship of this thing. Mm -hmm. And so basically, uh, he's still a professor there. And uh, one thing just to say that a lot of people emailed me and they were like, oh, I support you, but I can't speak publicly about this. And so David Robbs really put it, you know, put his money where his mouth was. He wasn't afraid. And he has gotten a lot of crap from this, too. Mm. He had students camping out outside his office at night when he was working, trying to catch him if he, you know, if he left to, mm -hmm. I think they wanted some sort of confrontation that they would film, but he managed to ev evade them. Uh, but anyways, so the issue was at this Institute at Berkeley, they, you know, like being the director or the department chair is a sucky job in general. Nobody wants to do that. And, uh, you're not really the boss. You're kind of like, you got to do what the other faculty say, especially in this, of, of this sort of center position. And so he realized that he couldn't in good faith be the representative doing what the faculty say when there wasn't agreement that they would make their invitations for science lectures based on science. Mm. I think that's the summary. Can I just ask about one detail uh, that you skipped over pretty quickly. You, you've mentioned in a, a number of places that you were, have been on job search committees, or I think maybe it was a postdoc yeah. hiring committee where the way you tell it, it, it sounds like pretty explicit racial quotas were being applied, um, right. which I, 
My understanding is that's illegal in the United States. It's unconstitutional to actually um, implement racial quotas. I mean, people get around it by sort of saying, well, we we take race into consideration in our hiring decisions and such. But I, I was just wondering if it if you ever got to the point where you considered like alerting no, whatever I, authorities are. Uh, yeah, so I didn't know that that stuff was illegal. Mm. I mean, you have to understand, like, the way you become a professor at the University of Chicago in a science is putting your head down and doing your science. And so I just didn't know that much about law. And I was like, this, this seems wrong, what we're doing. But I didn't know that it could be legal, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the specific way that this often happens is there's a bucket of money for hiring the best person and a bucket of money that's for, you know, like what they would call a diversity hire. And so it happened that in the year we were talking about the bucket of money for hiring the best person was empty. And so we were sort of told, you know, like all wink, wink, nod, nod, you, you know, we're only going to actually consider, you can nominate whoever you want. You can do an open search and nominate whoever you want, but we're only going to consider it if it's in this category. And that, this kind of thing is extremely common at universities across the country. So if I, if I were in that situation again today, so uh, being a tenured professor, that's an important caveat. You know, I wouldn't necessarily push things like this for everyone. But what I would do is I would say, uh, okay, if that's what we're going to do, can you please uh, give, give us those instructions in writing? Because that was the key point, is that it all came verbally. It was transmitted to us from the dean verbally. Mm -hmm. And so that would be step one. And then step two, if they did put it in writing, I would say, okay, um, can we get uh, an opinion on this from the general counsel of the university? And mm -hmm. if we got both those things and they still said do it, well, that, you know, that at least it would all be recorded and in writing and everyone would know what, mm -hmm. what we were up to. But I suspect that they wouldn't. I suspect if you pushed it like that, then they would back off. Uh, yeah, I suspect you'd be off the committee <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably not going to be on a lot of this sort of committee moving forward. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I was aware. Like, I, I'm still not really sure of what the exact laws are. Because, I mean, people say things all the time in our department about, like, like, uh, well, I mean, this isn't like hiring, so I don't know, like for our seminar talks, like needing to have a certain number, which turns out to be all or almost all of the speakers be like people of color or otherwise underrepresented um, or like, and then there were demands by grad students in our department that we make sure that a certain percentage of incoming students and faculty and just yeah. like everyone is, so I don't know, is that yeah, let, let actually me, illegal? Bottom line of how that works. You can invite whoever you want to come give a seminar. You can say we're only inviting, you know, uh, I don't know, queer, European, uh, whatever, leftists. It doesn't even matter. You can make up your categories and invite them to give a seminar. Uh, for admissions, it's you. you are allowed to take into account immutable characteristics, but only uh, in order to promote diversity for the general benefit of the entire student body. You cannot do it as a way to 
kind of make up for bad stuff in the past. But how do you tell those apart? Well, you know, like that. So the, there's a, the main Supreme Court saying that case ruling was 1978, Bakke or B-A-K-K-E. And uh, four justices said, you know, the 13th Amendment says we can't discriminate. And four said, well, we can discriminate. And one came up with this screwy compromise. And so that's why even the word diversity, that's why we even talk about it. No one would talk about it otherwise, because it, it's, it's really not that compelling that diversity actually increases academic performance. So uh, I, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because like one of your solutions is just, you know, we, we just need to look at merit. Um, but I guess like taken to the extreme, I mean, Asian students do yeah. a lot better than yeah. non-Asian students on like standardized testing. And so like wouldn't universities just become like mostly Asian and like isn't that I feel like that would reduce something in just like our exposure to different cultures and different uh perspectives and like like if there's so much literature on how uh western westerners think different than uh, people from Asia, then like you would expect that having a diversity of a mix of both would be a good thing. Let's finish the other point and then go on to that point. Okay. So then, then if you go to hiring, um, you know, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding from talking to lawyers is you, you can't just willy nilly use uh, immutable characteristics for hiring. So it's a lot easier to get away an admission to using willy-nilly immutable characteristics, although you're not supposed to say explicitly, oh, we're going for a quota, but you can say something like, we need more X people for more diversity, blah, blah, blah. But for hiring, you're not supposed to do that. And so that, that's kind of like, you know, it'd be good to talk to a lawyer, but you, you, you have to get really tricky when you try to do that for hiring. And that's why there'll be these funny schemes of like different pots of money, or fellowships where they say like, oh, this is the, you know, this is the diversity fellowship. And then at the bottom, it says like open to all groups of people, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, like they're, they're actually going to consider all groups of people, you know, those sorts of games. Okay. But then about the diversity, what's the merit of diversity on university? So I think you can make different arguments. Personally, I, I, I don't, think that it's appropriate to discriminate against people based on their, you know, you should treat people as individuals. And just because someone is Asian, I don't think we should just assume that they think in a certain way and that it would prevent a diversity of thought, even if we went to the extreme and it was all Asian people. Uh, but I can see the other argument for an undergraduate population. Also, I'm coming from a hard science quantitative background and that argument to me is just laughable when people make it about physics. It's like, it just doesn't matter. You know, like I don't care if, you know, most of my undergraduate physics class were uh, descendants of Eastern European Jews. And it just, there was nothing, there's no reason to think that that had it made, you know, had any negative impacts on uh, the physics that was getting done in that department, in my opinion. Uh, but then if you're talking about, I don't know, a softer field, you know, maybe you could make that argument for undergrads. Personally, I wouldn't go for it, but, you know, it's plausible. 
as you get to higher levels, though, I think it becomes more and more important not to make those arguments. So for hiring faculty, I really think you've got to go on merit. It, otherwise, uh, you're really undermining the whole purpose of a university. You start saying, you know, we're just going to take groups of pe people because of their group and their, uh, you know, if it, 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 not only does it is it problematic for the university, but also for those people. Now everybody knows that we were hiring people for university positions based on their category. And so, you know, what, what's it like to be the person hired in that position or the person hired who was good enough to do it anyways? And then you, you sort of have this, this cloud hanging over your position. I, I think it's a terrible idea for faculty for these reasons. You, yeah. Sorry, Rachel, you had something else? So, yeah, just one quick follow-up. Like, I, I, I agree that you should judge people based on their merit. Um, but I think that it is like complicated because I'm thinking the goal of the university in terms of like from the perspective of, of undergrads is to teach them, but also to just like turn them into well-functioning adults in our society and like being exposed to, you know, different cultures and different people from different backgrounds is part of like something that they'll experience in life yeah, we anyway. Know that's, we know that, that that's okay. I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. I'm going to be annoying. Uh, I already know where this argument is going, but I know that that's, that's the window dressing, but we know that that's not the true motivation because they aren't out there lobbying to have conservatives in there. <laughs> you know, like if that really were the motivation, then they would be saying we need religious fundamentalists and we need conservatives and we need a whole lot of different perspectives to expose people to. And that's not happening. So I don't believe that motivation. I wanted to go back to something you said. Um, hey, you're not satisfied with that. What? <laughs> no, but I wanted to give Paul a turn. <laughs> um, okay. No, no, no. Go actually, Rachel. Yeah. This is, this yeah. is good. Okay. Socratic dialogue. That's what this podcast is all about. I'm, I'm going to sit back and. <laughs> well, so I guess like two things. One is I think it can be their motivation. But at the same time, they can be, like, also concerned about other things, like uh, correcting past uh, injustices or whatever. Um, also, they can be concerned that conservatives, and this is something that I've heard from progressive friends, is that conservatives make the campus, like, yeah, a I bad know. experience because it's they're Marcusa. racist and sexist. It's Marcusa. It's the, it's the, what does he call that? Repressive tolerance. Tolerate everyone you agree with and repress everyone you disagree with. It's fine. Yeah. You can make that argument, but it's not very plausible to me. I mean, it's pretty clear. I, I, yeah. God. <laughs> no, I think like really, I mean, just my intuition is that people do care about diversity for the reason that I brought up of like just being exposed to different cultures and, and backgrounds and everything. Um, and they've just like overlooked and probably not like completely innocently, but I think they, that like, that's something that we need to work on now is to raise awareness about like other types of diversity that are less visible and that, um, that they haven't focused on as much, but I feel like people, I don't think that it's just window dressing. Like, I think they do actually care about, um, exposing, you know, to, to a variety of, uh, backgrounds, but uh, of course, there is like all this other stuff going on as well. So I just I just think it's complicated. Yeah, someone, an old guy recently told me when I was an undergrad 
people tended to look the same, but they thought differently. Now they tend to look differently, but they all think the same. <laughs> yeah, I think that's <laughs> I true. Was, which I thought was a funny uh, point. Yeah. So, Dorian, you mentioned earlier that a figure of, you said around 75% of people, if you poll them, are against um, hiring decisions being made based on immutable characteristics. I'm just curious where that, where, where that figure came from. From Pew. Uh, it's a poll, 2019, the last one I was able to find on this. Yeah. 75% of Americans uh, say that diversity is important. They value diversity. But also, I think 74, 74% say that it should not be uh, a factor in hiring decisions, even if the result is less diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a basic issue of fairness. And when you break that down by categories, that includes the majority of both political, major political parties and of all races, of all, all racial groups. It's pretty interesting. I saw recently there was a ballot measure in California to bring back affirmative action in government hiring, and it and it failed. Um, even, even in among- California, and it failed by I think uh, uh, twenty points. Mm. And this even is among minority groups. Thing. Well, so I, I mean, but a lot of minority. Well, it depends what you mean by minority groups, or you know, like all these terms are loaded and complicated now. But it was resisted most by. Uh, Asian groups, Asian American groups, because they saw that they were going to be hurt by this. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a common theme here of, that I've noticed is that a lot of these efforts are not too bad for rich white people, but they end up hurting uh, poor white people and Asian American immigrants, people with less political power. So take something like getting rid of the SAT for admission. That's, that's big great. News this week. What's that? It's big news this week. Harvard, Harvard got yeah. rid of it. So who's that talking good for? Who, you know, who, who's that's excellent. If your kids, if you know, if you're a rich guy in New York City, and your kids aren't that bright and can't compete based on merit, and you can get and you know how to get them in in other ways, uh, but it's bad if you're you know just another child of an Asian immigrant who worked really hard and did well on the SAT, and so. I think that's a dynamic that's going on with a lot of these efforts. Yeah, the um, I think the Harvard law, uh, lawsuit is still going on, right? It's they're appealing it. It's going to be heard by the Supreme Court, and now with the conservative majority in the Supreme Court, it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens with the legal situation. I'm, so, if you look at the Supreme Court cases, there's the Bakke case, and then there's one from like early 2000s, I think it was Michigan or Texas. Anyways, there was another case that involved in this. And in both cases, they said, this can't go on forever. Maybe in 20 years or so, we can revisit it and it'll be time to get rid of Mm -hmm. this kind of program. And so that could be, if that ends up going through, it could be the case that stops Mm -hmm. this stuff. But I do think even with these numbers and this public polling, I guess I do think people have not fully coherent views on this and there are competing intuitions, right? And I, from the perspective of marginalized groups in the United States, let's take African-Americans say, um, I can, I can see how somebody from this group would, you know, read your think piece and say, okay, well, this all sounds very good, completely merit-based admission, 
nobody's discriminated against based on immutable characteristics. However, um, you know, my group doesn't have equal opportunity. My group has less access to education. And, you know, it's all very well for this professor to say, oh, well, we'll, we'll improve education for your group. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when's that actually going to happen? When yeah. do we see that actually happening? Is that just something that they're, they're saying? Because very likely that it is very likely that if uh, completely merit-based admissions were implemented tomorrow, it would lead to less people from that group, less African-Americans gaining access to elite institutions. Yeah. So let me address that before we go on. So it doesn't mean that there would be less people, what, what, I mean, let's focus on African-Americans going to university, but it does mean that the universities that each group goes to would shift around a little bit. And there's a great book called A Dubious Expediency that came out last summer which addresses this. And one of the points they make in there, they do a statistical analysis and they claim that there are, as a result of affirmative action, there are now less African-American scientists, doctors, and engineers. And the reason is, it turns out that in STEM fields, uh, when you're at a, when you come into a university with sort of preparation that's not at the matched well with that university, you are more likely to switch out of STEM. You come in with an interest in STEM, you're more likely to switch out of STEM. This has also been shown by R.C. Diacono at Duke. Uh, and it, it, he got access to all of Duke's admission and success data in different fields. And so, but if you go into a university where you're matched well with your uh, uh, preparation, you're more likely to stay in STEM and to succeed in it, and then to be able to go on later uh, to graduate school. And so it's not so simple that uh, that doing these programs is actually good for the people that they're meant to benefit. And that's an important point that's often not understood. The second thing that I would say is I 100% agree that it was appropriate in 1964 to be discussing affirmative action and potentially to be doing it. Uh, when, and, and the key point here is where there were individuals who were clearly being discriminated against legally, individuals that were alive, and then they were applying. So if you have someone and you can prove that this person has been discriminated against, then I, then I totally think that they should get some redress. But when it's just sort of a vague thing, you know, more than half a century later, it, it can't be a permanent solution in, in America that we treat different groups of people differently. You know, it's just it's it's antithetical to uh, sort of the American conception of fairness and to anything. You know, it, that, that's my perspective. That's what I would say. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've I've heard of the I think it's called the mismatch hypothesis um, yeah. that that you refer to. Um, I think it's I think it's contested. Uh, there, there was a paper, um, our friend. Manny found we we were discussing the same thing. They actually showed, um, uh, well, they purported to show that the end of affirmative action in California had adversely affected the earnings, the subsequent earnings of Latinos, but they didn't find sufficient evidence that it had affected the subsequent earnings of African-Americans. Um, read this dubious expediency, because what's interesting is as a result of ending that, they got more STEM graduates in uh, 
from underrepresented groups and a higher graduation rate all at once if you look across the University of California system. Because the interesting thing is in the University of California system, it already has these tiers built in. And so there's a bunch of different levels uh, and then it goes all the way down to like the uh, California state universities. So there's, you know, like, let's say 10 levels in there already. So it's a perfect way to test this idea. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I mean, in, in this paper, they were sort of suggesting that, you know, there was it, like, it was at least contested among economists, political scientists, um, this mismatch hypothesis. I also think like in, in the case of say faculty hiring, it doesn't it doesn't quite work right because if you if you're hired given tenure based on affirmative action then there's no there's no there's no problem of mismatch right uh they can still you know you you kind of have that have that job and you're not going to drop out because the job's too hard right you just might not if you were sort of hired uh in lieu of maybe a more qualified candidate i mean you you're still going to keep that job you're just might not do it quite as well as the yeah, so candidate the, did. Or. Yeah, so there it's more this issue of, so if you talk, do, have you heard of Anna Krilov? No. She wrote a, she's a professor at USC of chemistry, and she wrote a great essay that you should read called The Perils of Politicizing Science. But this is a point that she makes a lot as a woman in science, that she does not want any favoritism. And she doesn't want, not only for her, but for any women, because she doesn't want any of her achievements to be sort of questioned. And so that's where that comes in for tenured faculty. But I think the real point here, there's, there's two issues that I've gotten, I've gotten involved in two issues. One is this issue of uh, diversity and quotas and stuff. And I agree, I admit that that issue is more debatable. I have my perspective, other people have different perspectives that's fine. I, and there's different levels where you would think about it in different ways. I'm going to make my case as strong as I can, but I don't think someone's crazy necessarily for objecting to it, at least in some ways. Then there's the issue of whether someone should be able to state their opinions and continue their scientific career without being ostracized, attacked, and have their lectures canceled. Uh, and more generally, whether students should be able to say what they think in classes without being afraid, uh, whether faculty should be able to give their opinions with, in whatever form they want without fearing that their job will be lost. That's actually, people are against that. And that's something that I feel much more strongly about that, you know, if, if, if we can't say our opinions on campus, then the university can't achieve its objectives in any way. It's completely undermined the, yeah. the whole point of university. I have a question for you about this. Um, so, uh, and this is like fortunate that you're a climate scientist because um, one of the examples that people often bring up uh, when you say that you want like viewpoint diversity is, well, what if we, there was a climate change denier? Would you want them to be on campus? So I wanted to ask you, like, first of all, yes. is there... Oh. So we yeah. had this. So before all of this, before things got so cuckoo, this is like 2012. There's a, you know, a so-called climate denier, someone who is a scientist. Her name's Judith Curry. She was at Georgia Tech. She's retired now. Who is in the scientific community and is basically a lot less worried about climate change than other people. I've never heard her say anything scientifically inaccurate. 
but let's put it that way. And I think she, it's possible. She said, you know, I can't vouch for every, I don't know everything she's ever said, but basically the way I would say it is that I think her claims about climate change are on the, within the error, but she underestimates her own error. So there's a large error, uh, uh, a large uncertainty in what we think is going to happen. She puts it on the lowest end of warming and is too certain about it, that it's on the lowest end. Okay, that's how I would summarize it. But I invited her to give a seminar at, uh, in our department. I invited her to give our department seminar and to come say her perspective on climate change. And she gave it and you know people had questions and we interacted and we all went out to dinner and it was a great time. And so, yeah, I would say, yes, we should allow climate, so-called climate deniers onto our universities and we should hear them out. And I don't think she convinced anyone because her arguments weren't that good. So I don't see a problem with that. This, this connects to what I wanted to ask you about too, because you, it seems to me that you defend pretty much a maximalist version of academic freedom. And it also seems to me that most people have the intuition that there are some opinions, there are some things that people can say that are beyond the pale, that should be banned, that, that are genuinely harmful. Um, yeah, so give me yours. What are yours? Well, so, I mean, Papa talked about the paradox of tolerance, right? Like to have a tolerant society, you need to be intolerant of the intolerant. So the, the classic example that everybody ah. would go to straight away is uh, – literal Nazis, right? So literal, you know, people who literally want to argue for the superiority and inferiority of, of racial groups. Um, well, we don't have to go there. Let's put that aside because that seems to be, get everyone in trouble for talking about. <laughs> no, well, I, it's I mean, okay. We're already going to get canceled. No, but this is, but, <laughs> but I, no, woke, I think it's key. And this, I think we should, this, we should go this there. This argument because, would apply to the woke, right? Because the woke are saying that we can't tolerate this view, this view, this view. And so they're using tolerance to argue that we shouldn't tolerate certain views. So let, you can be much more direct. You don't have to. No, appeal well, to I mean, that, that their position is that, yes, we are intolerant of, of intolerant, harmful views, and, and this is necessary to have an inclusive, tolerant uh, university. So, because I think this is the key, this is a key point, because if you, if you don't have any line between what's beyond the pale and what's uh, allowable in terms of academic freedom, you, you, your opponents will be able to say, well, this person is on the side of the Nazis. And they will say that almost immediately. This person wants race scientists in universities. This person wants any view to be discussed. And I, so I think like, I have no problem with that. I, I want them to say that that is what mm -hmm. I think. So let me give you my example. Uh, think of something as disgusting as possible pedophilia okay suppose there's some you know like there are people who argue that being a pedophile is a uh whatever a sex uh sexual identity mm -hmm. that's the language they use it's just a sexual identity and as long as everybody is in a uh you know gives their consent it's all okay okay to me that is a disgusting view but i know that people advocate for that Okay. If you were going to, if some student group wants to invite someone who's going to give that view, I would say go for it. But then I would want to have another student group invite, you know, like a psychologist who's going to say, 
well, actually, you know, children can't really give consent. And here are the sorts of impacts that pedophilia has on children and on outcomes in their life and et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I would deal with that. I wouldn't be scared to, you know, that no one should be exposed to that view because they, I mean, like, I guess it's, mm. it, I have a more optimistic view of people. Mm. I feel like people are going to hear, hear that and they're going to say like, that's bogus. And if you give them a better argument on the other side, they're going to say oh, that one's better. And then that'll be the end of it. I don't have this feeling like it's, it, here's an example. I have a German friend and uh, Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. He, you know, like I once asked him if he'd ever read it. And he's like, no. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, it's illegal. And I would never look at that book. And I was like, what do you think? It's got some magic. You think it's, you're going to, it's going to turn you into a Nazi. If you read it, believe me, I read it. It's not that convincing. And so that's sort of my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this connects to what you wanted to get to as well in terms of solutions, because it, it really seems that you're, you, the position you're pushing is that um, what academics who are concerned about these issues need to do at the moment is to be treating it as a political issue, to be actually like communicating with the public, communicating with lawmakers to try to get in place um, more, uh, more effective protections for academic freedom. And so I think like one, one thing that I was, I was thinking when I was thinking about that is like, well, if it's, if it is just a political democratic issue, it relies on, it relies on the public having strong feelings about this. It relies on um, people who want sort of maximal academic freedom being able to win over the public and have the public sort of support their side of the debate. And I think, I do think it's a problem. It's a problem for people who do want to get, uh, win uh, widespread public support for maximal academic freedom that it, it, it does entail um, allowing the worst the worst possible things that can be said to, to be said in an academic context. And this is this is generally where sort of opponents of of the viewpoint will will go to. Uh, this is the, the counter argument they will use. And so it is something that we sort of need to grapple with and have, have a strong uh, response to, because I think a lot of people do have the intuition that, oh yeah, but not, you know, like academic freedom, but not, not Nazis or not like people advocating pedophilia, but how it's actually you, interesting how, you bring up. I mean, how would you, who's going to be the committee that sits around and decides that here's what I would say. It's basically like, okay, so it wasn't just uh, the public. I also was arguing in that little essay I sent you that alumni should be very important for this mm -hmm. because the people I've talked to who, who really get this issue are non-academics and alumni. You know, often I talk to academics and they're just oddly, they're the ones who seem to be the strongest against academic freedom. And a lot of these cuckoo ideas that have spilled out into the public, they originally came from cuckoo academics. And so they're kind of like the source of the problem. So I'm not sure they're going to fix the problem. Uh, but in terms of this issue, the way I would make this argument is, look, uh, universities have been putting out, you know, it's easier for me to say from the science, from the sciences, you know, I can say like, look, you leave us alone. You give us our teeny, teeny amounts of money. You know, it's like, it's a negligible amount of the GDP. You give us this teeny amounts of money. You let us do our weird nerdy stuff. We play with our computers and equations. And then, you know, like 
somebody stumbles on something that leads to cars and airplanes and, you know, like cell phones and it's basically worth it, worth it for you. It's a good invest, like a venture capital investment. Uh, there's lots of an argument for whatever, like the anthropology department, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't know what, I don't know. They can make their own argument for their existence, but for academic freedom, and, and in particular, like a lot of scientists are weird and say weird stuff and have odd views on a whole variety of things and cuckoo views that don't, you know, like aren't, uh, you know, your average scientist is not going to be a great uh, cocktail party guest. Okay. They're going to say odd things. They're going to be awkward. And should we be going around and stopping them from doing their science because of that? That's sort of my argument. Like, even if they say wacky things or things that you can consider immoral, who cares? Just leave them siloed in the university and uh, let them say what they want and you'll get good stuff out of it. I, yeah, I, it's interesting. I think like where we are now uh, in a lot, in a lot of places is a weird mushy gray area in between maximal academic freedom and like a lot of thought policing where there are cases like yours that pop up and you get a talk canceled and some people are pro and some people are against. And it's kind of these constant debates about where the line is that separates what's uh, beyond the pale and, and not beyond the pale. We had a really interesting guest a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dave Foster, who did a survey about <laughs> basically asking people what, what should fall under the protection of academic freedom and what shouldn't. And it was so interesting because people's intuitions just seemed completely dependent on their emotional response to what, what was being said. And I, I just wonder if people, if people do have the intuition that some things are beyond the pale, some things are okay, maybe they're comfortable leaving it as it is where there's just this mushy middle ground that like gets sorted out case by case. And then there's Here's the problem. Ad, ad hoc committees me, making all these decisions. Let me tell you the problem with that is it sounds really great to like the woke radical left right now to have that system in place. But if that's the system we're going to go with, the the legislatures are going to start imposing, you know, uh, uh, their opinion on what's acceptable and what's not. And a whole lot of the stuff that the woke radical left are pushing is going to suddenly be unacceptable. And so even from their perspective, it makes sense to be a little bit stronger in defense of academic freedom. And I think even if you're going to, if you're going to say that someone advocating certain things should be outlawed, uh, should be, should not be allowed to speak, I would say it has to be something like it's illegal. You know, so like you could say like, okay, we're going to ban this guy because he's advocating pedophilia. And that's, you know, we've recognized that that's unacceptable in our society and that's illegal. Or if he's going to, uh, advocate killing people of a certain group, you know, we're going to ban that and we're all going to get behind it, but because it's illegal, but just because someone thinks it's immoral, that's no way. Someone thinks almost everything is immoral. Like yeah, uh, uh, think- advance that someone didn't think was immoral when it, when it mm. came up. Mm. But I think, I don't know, for me, like one of the things that I feel like was people, students protested about and like justly so was um milo yiannopoulos back in i don't know 2016 whatever whenever it was was uh, going around giving talks and he was like outing trans people like saying 
there like he would have like i think there was maybe at least one case like this where he like said the name of someone who was trans and hadn't come out as trans and was like talking about them in a talk at a university and like uh saying mean things about them and whatever and i think like that's not illegal but i think shouldn't be like i think that we would be right to say like that doesn't belong on our campus um and for me part of where i draw the line is like if it's relevant to anything like academic and i think just like demeaning people and saying that they are mentally ill or i don't know just like and and uh making them a target for other people to attack is not an academic endeavor. Um, Yeah. Well, I agree. That's not an academic endeavor. And I certainly wouldn't invite someone to give a talk like that. Uh, But does that mean that they should be banned necessarily? I don't know. I'm not so sure. I mean, I I don't actually know who this guy is. I don't really know anything about him. Uh, I've never listened to anything. I've heard that name, but that's all I know. I know there's someone named Rachel Fulton Brown at University of Chicago who knows him. And she's mentioned, she, I've talked to her once and she mentioned his name. So I don't know the details of that case, but my general intuition is once you, when you start play, it's a Pandora's box, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and you've seen this mission creep. It comes, someone, someone now says they're harmed about anything now. And once you give them those magic words to say to try to shut down someone else's speech, then they try to use them in every situation. Mm. I mean, That's you know, like what's I mean, there's no question that someone that the university and and the police should protect this person spoken about, should make sure that no attacks happen against this person. And if this Milo said, Oh, everybody go beat up this guy because he's a transsexual or whatever, that that would should certainly be not allowed and i it possibly would be even be illegal as a type of incitement uh but other than that i mean i don't know i think it's a, it's a hard case yeah, yeah i, I right. think like basically what i'm advocating for is just like i think there should be a little bit of mushiness a little bit of the gray area for um because like the world isn't black and white and like there are going to be cases where people say say things that are are you know, beyond the pale, like they, they just shouldn't be said. Um, mm. And I think right now we're in a place where we're like erring way too much on the side of canceling people and uh, disinviting them and restricting their speech. Um, but if we had the ability to shut down Nazi Germany from, you know, happening back then, like, I think we should have done it and not like allowed, uh, Hitler to give speeches. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one thing that that is interesting to think about, though, is the community making these decisions is a very restricted community with a very uh, biased political viewpoint. I mean, biased in the sense that it's not a random sample drawn from the population, not in the set, not in a sort of political sense of bias. And so that makes it so it you know, the decisions being made about what's acceptable and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable would not be recognized as coherent and just decisions by the vast majority of Americans. And so that's an issue that would have to be dealt with. We're going to play that game. It's much easier to just say, we're not playing the game. 
And then if you start playing the game, you're immediately as an institution censoring certain viewpoints and keeping people from hearing certain viewpoints, which is not, first of all, it's not healthy if your goal is to pursue the truth, but it's also not healthy for the students because they're not going to stay at the university forever. Right. Mm. They're going to eventually going to have to go out and interact with people from the public who think those things. So wouldn't it be, isn't it better for them to be exposed to them in a, a lower risk environment and understand the arguments and if they want to construct counter arguments try to construct them rather than just like deer in headlight when someone makes one of these arguments with no option but to have a, a free an apoplectic fit and say you know i'm being harmed and you can't speak mm-hmm. that would be my response you're you're the first guest on this podcast to like actually fully advocate for maximal academic freedom almost everybody we've had lee just sam chris ferguson everybody stops short and and sort of like tries to think up some way of trying to come up with some way to get out of it it's it's mm. try keith whittington that he's like the director of the academic freedom alliance Mm. maybe he'll yeah if he comes up with some wiggle room then you'll know that i'm really crazy (laughs) (laughs) no i think like it's I am, yeah, no, I I am kind of sympathetic to it because I have thought a lot about where that line could be drawn and I am, you know, very aware that the lack of a line um, in in today's climate totally plays in favour of um, Twitter outrage mobs um, because, you know, the, 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 the line where like er, things beyond it are disallowable is like we're it's constantly constricting the uh circle of allowable speech and it's constantly expanding this idea that certain speech does harm certain i mean just rachel just last week was accused of creating a hostile environment quote unquote for um registering a very mild politically dissenting viewpoint over sort of uh, reply all email to the department and you know the concept of hostile environment is something that can be wielded to get people fired to get people kicked out of that's the whole point uh, of jobs yeah. so it, it's like uh it's like a virus it, infecting a host so the host is the is this language in employment law and the virus infects it and then it uses the host dna to go do what the mm. virus wants and so there you have this or you can think of it like a bug in the code the coders who wrote this law, they put in this bug, which was hostile environment. And the, the these people now have realized that it's a bug and they're exploiting it to try to bring down the system. So what did you say, Rachel? What was your thought crime? <laughs> this is our uh, promo for next episode, probably. Um, but basically, uh, they sent out an email in response to Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted, um, where they basically like... It was a couple of faculty in the department who sent it out in the name of a DEI subcommittee. Um, and they were just saying, like, you know, uh, this is unjust and and we f- feel bad and let's gather in solidarity and, and so on. And I uh, just pushed back on the idea that um, everyone has the same viewpoint and that maybe we shouldn't be uh, assuming that and uh, that faculty especially if they're like representing a committee shouldn't be saying uh, like sort of like here's the right narrative the moral narrative that you should all get behind so yeah so that's the calvin report at university of chicago 
it basically says, you know, universities and sub units of universities should not be making official statements because like you pointed out, it immediately restricts and censors the people who, uh, who disagree with them. It's just, we should be able to have a, a science department where we go in and do our science. You know, mm-hmm. I like the example, I have a colleague who's an actual Marxist, like his website has tiled images of Karl Marx on the back, he, on, on the, behind his, his picture and, and the words. He has not just Marxism, he has the Soviet Union flag in his office, okay? My wife is from Ukraine and her family suffered under the Soviet Union for generations. Uh, this was a despotic, murderous regime that you know, led to the deaths of something like 60 or 70 million people. But I don't give a, a crap. You know, I, I'm totally fine. As long as we just do science in there, that's, that's totally fine by me. And I think that has to be the attitude. It shouldn't be like certain political views, you know, as long as they're contained to your own personal view and not, you know, basically disrupting the scientific pursuit should just be allowed to exist there. One final question. Um, you've sort of talked a lot about how, um, you know, a fear of criticism leads people to self-censor. And when, you know, you have a majority of people self-censoring about issues, it's harder to do science. It's harder to get to the truth. Um, it's harder to explore different sides of viewpoints and unpack everybody's arguments if people aren't are afraid to say what they think. I, I am curious how much of that sense of self-censorship is actually about fear of getting fired uh, and how much of it is just fear of sort of social social opprobrium or like yeah. being, being called, uh, being called a racist or being called a sexist or, Before or a vegan talk or about it, like that. Let's consult the data. So I'm a scientist. So that's where I like to start. So uh, what fraction of undergraduates right now say that they uh, self-censor? Like 60% depends is the, on the figure survey, I heard from. Depends on the survey. Yeah. The most 60 recent. To 70. So actually let's see. From the CSPI Center survey, recent survey, it's 80% right now in 2021. Now, it's it presumably it's going up. It could have been 60 or 70 only two years ago. 80%. What fraction in 1954 of Americans said they self-censored? Oh, wasn't it like 5 or 6% or something? And that's Macar- in, in right. the height of the McCarthy era. Hmm. What fraction do you think it was? It was 13, 13%. So you were roughly right. So at the height of this era that is known as a stifling period for free speech, 13% of Americans self-censored. And currently on college campuses, 80% of students are self-censoring. So that just gives you a sense of the magnitude of the problem that we're dealing with. Now, of course, like you say, there are different surveys and different times, but they're never getting less than like 50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a serious, serious issue. And then, okay, what was the question? Well, I guess my question is, yeah. even if maximal academic freedom is implemented, yeah. aren't, people, aren't people really afraid of being called racist yeah, rather so than getting fired? Yeah, right? so here's, so this is why, you know, have you ever heard people say like, oh, academic freedom is, uh, it's a right, but it's also a duty. Have you ever heard that? I have now. <laughs> yeah. First time hearing of it. Oh, okay. So the way this often gets brought up is they'll say, it's a duty. Your duty is to restrict what you say so that you don't cause offense. 
Okay. Now I have the opposite perspective. I think that your duty, if you're a tenured professor, your duty is to say whatever you think, however cuckoo it is, uh, just to normalize people saying whatever they think. <laughs> and so that's how, that's how it has to get dealt with, dealt with that the senior people need to start being more honest about what they actually think about stuff. And then slowly it'll normalize it for the students. But, mm. but let's talk about some other statistics. So there's a survey by Eric Kaufman. Uh, let me find the numbers. I got them ready for this. So that about uh, three in 10,000 faculty each year at top universities in the US and UK have a cancellation attack, which is de defined as some sort of organized attack to get them to lose their job, have their job restricted, or to deplatform them, which means have their talk canceled. So that doesn't sound like that much. However, a typical university has about a thousand faculty, you know, normal teaching faculty. And so that means you, every three years, one of them is going to get one of these attacks. And at University of Chicago, I counted them up and there's four people who've had a prominent attack in the past nine years and two of them twice. So six total attacks in nine years. So we're actually a little bit above that rate. And so that has a big impact. You know, like students that I've talked to, they're not worried about losing their job, but they are worried about being expelled or, uh, you know, not finding a job in the future. And so those things do have a big impact. I mean, why does someone care if they get called a racist? I think part of that is social ostracism, but some of it's actually just, you know, like mm. materialistic effect on, mm. on their future financial interests. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to separate the two, right? Lee Sim talks about this a lot is like the way academia works is you, you succeed through a, a community allowing you to succeed. That's how you get publications. That's how you get to talk at conferences. That's how you get jobs is this social reputational system. So yeah. I guess, um, and also not just in academia, like not just in academia, because, right. you know, people are in uh, corporate companies are like digging up tweets from 10 years ago and getting people fired. Uh, yeah, it's just like. But usually the way it works is activists dig up tweets and bring them to the attention of the corporate yeah. guys. And then they say, oh, crap, we can't deal with this kind of PR. And then they just mm -hmm. fire the person. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's always the same logic. It's always some there's somebody who makes the decision. Right. And so if that person is like President Zimmer and just says, go get stuffed, mm -hmm. then you don't have as many of these problems. But if that person is like, oh, no, this is terrible. I better like do something to try to make sure that I don't have bad PR. That's mm -hmm. when you have problems. So but in answer to your question, like what's which, which of these is more important? The social thing, you're, you know, you're talking to a person who is not good on social stuff. So I can't really answer that question. Yeah, <laughs> I would, that, that's I would what I was thinking. Whatever, I thought, whatever, whatever anyone else said you, about. Yeah, like, do you think you have a thicker than normal skin, or do you think you, uh, I don't know, somewhere on the spectrum? Like, what, what, what is it about you, particularly, well, you know, that's I, made I you like sort the, of willing to? to I don't stick like your the head whole out? spectrum thing because you know, like, basically, there are people who have asked. Uh, who have autism and it's like a pretty serious illness. Uh, oh yeah. But, I've worked with them, but uh, you know, I definitely don't pick up on social cues very well. Let's just say that I'm somewhere in the no range of normal human beings, but that's not my strong suit. Uh, but I think a big part of it 
for me is having uh, having a life outside of acad- academia. You know, my wife's a normal person. My parents are normal people. I don't really care what people think, you know, like in my department, <laughs> if they think I'm a, a big idiot, I, I could care less. Uh, another thing is having a religion. So, you know, like I go to church and talk to people who come from different areas and every Sunday hear about, you know, more what's really important in life. And then reading more broadly, you know, like I, th- I think a lot of people read the news every day and stuff. It- it's better to read, you know, like Stoic philosophy, if, you know, to prepare yourself for life. Don't worry about what's happening every day. Just prepare yourself to deal with whatever happens. So those would be my recommendations. But I'm not an expert on that kind of thing. I'm an expert on, you know, like partial differential equations and supercomputers and extrasolar planets. So, you know, like <laughs> take, take everything I just said with a grain of salt. Um, yeah. So uh, we've kept you uh, past the time uh, that you so graciously gave us. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and just like digging through all these uh, complicated issues with us. Um, I think Paul's always trying to find the line and maybe you've convinced him that there shouldn't be a line. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, yeah. Well, um, thanks for having me. And also it's really important that young people are talking about these issues. Uh, so thank you. And uh, thanks for calling me young. <laughs> <laughs> if you want uh, other guests, I would look at Jerry Coyne, Brian Light- Leitner. They're really into this stuff. And then Keith Whittinghouse at Princeton, the, the, I don't know what his title is. I think it's director of the academic freedom Alliance. I would like to know if he has a line, hmm. he has a book. <laughs> right. he gave, they gave me a book. I forget it was him or if it was Robert George, but it's called speak freely. Hmm. I haven't read it yet. So I can't tell you if he defines a line in there, but it would be interesting to know. Well, it seems like you're doing a good job already of speaking freely. So it's possible <laughs> you don't need that book. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, I, so, like it, very few people, as you know, are willing to uh, speak out and dissent about issues of DEI, uh, affirmative action, academic freedom. So, um, yeah, I appreciate people who are willing to just speak honestly and say what they think. And you know, I, you seem like a reasonable person. So, I yeah, I appreciate it. And you know, I hope the whole experience hasn't been too traumatic and and i hope it doesn't uh adversely affect your future career prospects um okay i mean first let's not before you go any further it's this trauma is a word that i think should be used lightly and nothing i've gone through is anywhere approaching trauma and second of all like i'm a tenured professor at the university of chicago so you know it's more like if i weren't speaking my mind then i would be not doing my job that's sort of how i look at this so you know it's the, all the young people who are not able, you know, leaving the field and having crummy times when they go to the office because they have to censor themselves. Those are the ones that we should be worrying about. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, thank you again. Yeah. So much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time. Sure.